What a night. Guys, welcome to SALT. My name is Ryan. Super happy that you guys are here. And we are going to uh, finish up our little mini-series on childlikeness tonight. So past couple weeks we've been going after that word childlikeness. Mark 10, all these kids are coming to Jesus. And his disciples try and turn them away. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Why? Because my kingdom, kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, belongs to children. There is some sort of spiritual advantage in the kingdom of God that children have on us, and we are exploring what that, could look, what that looks like, what we need to adopt from them. So we've gone over childlike faith, we've gone over childlike joy, and tonight as we conclude, it's going to be childlike innocence. Childlike innocence, right? What is that? It's pretty much just being uncorrupted by evil, right? Unstained by the world. There's a, a movie that I remember, man, I haven't seen since like freshman year of high school and like reading class or whatever. Maybe you read the book Boy in Striped Pajamas, right? I think it's just wonderful. It's sad, yes. It's just wonderful, wonderful kind of case study of what innocence looks like, right? It's like World War II and we're in a concentration camp. And there is a boy who's, his daddy like runs the camp, right? He is the son of a high-ranking Nazi official. And he's out playing around their house, out kind of by this concentration camp. And across this fence, he meets a boy who he thinks kind of looks funny. It looks a little different from him. And it's, it's a Jewish boy who's in the concentration camp with his family. And he's wearing like these striped clothes, hence the striped pajamas, right? The outfit they gave him. And it's just this beautiful story where the world couldn't be more corrupt, right? Like, like where they are, like you're literally in this setting of pure evil. And here's like these two little boys, unstained, uncorrupted, just like with like this childlike innocence blossoming into this beautiful little friendship. I love that plot. I love it. And I think childlike innocence is something that I don't know, I watch that and I, I crave it, right? Like, you want to see, like, it's so fun. All my friends are having babies, right? And if you want to see childlike innocence, like, I hang out with my friends, and we just kind of like, this is like the new pattern, right? Like, we, we get in a circle, like all the adults, just kind of like throw the babies in the middle, put them, put them in the middle of the circle. <laughs> don't throw the babies. And, like, we just, like, watch them. Like, that's like the new entertainment now once you get into your upper 20s or something. You just, like, watch babies play. And it's like this beautiful, like purity, right? It's like there's just something like, man, there's like hope in a broken world when you're just watching these little babies play around. They don't do taxes, right? They never had heartbreak yet. They've never been to a funeral. They don't know what a funeral is. But you know when like all of this gets real, it's not when it's just something you see out there and you're like long for like it in a movie or whatever. It's like when you remember innocence as something you lost, right? Like, do you remember the first time you, like, swore at your dad or your mom? I do. It's super awkward because they're here tonight, but I remember, I was like, I didn't even know what I was doing was wrong, but my dad beat me in a game of pool, right? And I just, like, dropped an F-bomb on him. I was like, <laughs> and he looked at me, and he goes, what did you just say? And stupid little kid, I repeated myself. <laughs> I said it again, even though I had a feeling that wasn't okay, and he just looks at me and goes, no, sir. And my, I, was, I thought I was going to be toast right there. And I never did that again, right? 
I learned my lesson. Do you remember getting like the talk when you were a kid from your parents or like maybe in like health class if you were like the kid who still didn't know because somebody didn't tell you on the playground? Dude, it's like your whole world gets turned upside down. It's literally like life is ruined <laughs> at that moment. Innocence lost. I mean, how about the first time you went to a party, you got drunk, you woke up the next day just thinking, oh, this is all there is to life. This can't be right. Or you remember when that someone talked you into doing those things that you didn't want to do. When someone talked you into losing your virginity, of course you do. Of course you remember. And maybe when you think of innocence, I bring that up tonight, you actually get really mad. Like there's anger and sadness like welling deep up inside of you right now because innocence is something that you think was taken from you. Like you feel maybe tonight like purity is something that's so far gone in your life. It's so far in the rear view that it's just not worth fighting for. I think that's a totally fair thought if that's where you're at tonight. I think it's totally fair. Like childlike innocence is like this vague memory of the past, right? And it's inevitable that we'll never make it through this messed up world unstained, right? Right? I mean, why are we even talking about childlike innocence if it's impossible? That's the tension I feel. That's the big question we need to ask is, is childlike innocence even possible for us? Guys, tonight I'm going to tell you a story about a guy from the Bible. Um, and what you are going to find, what we're going to find, is really, really good news who, for people who like hear about innocence and crave it. And I'm going to tell you that the farther you think you are from God right now, I think the better this news is going to sound to you in the end. So the story tonight is a, the life of King David, somebody a lot of you guys have heard of before, who had a lot of great triumph in his early years, right? A lot of impressive stuff. It's like the spiritual way of saying you peaked in high school. That is the story of King David, right? But I'm telling you, his life wasn't all great victories because he actually became a massive failure. And we'll see that. We'll also have to see if he could ever get back to that place of childlike innocence. And so open up to 1 Samuel 17, if you would. And let me set the table, introduce you to this up-and-coming David, right? It was a new, well, it was a time for a new king in Israel, okay? And so God sent a prophet to this man named Jesse and said, this guy's got a bunch of sons, go and essentially do a interview version, like prophet version of an interview. And you're going to go see which one am I going to make the next king of my people. And he goes, starting with the oldest, boom, 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 all the way down, seven sons. God gives him a no on all of them. He says, is this it? And Jesse's like, oh, I have one more. He is the youngest. And he is actually out doing the dirt work. He is actually a shepherd boy. And so he calls him, he brings him back in. And sure enough, what does God say through the prophet? This is the next king of Israel. Fascinating. Against all the odds, it's the youngest, the innocent, the musician, the humble shepherd boy that God picks to be the future king. And so he's anointed. 
And David begins this period in his life of waiting for the throne to be empty so he can be God's anointed on the throne. And in that time, he kind of gets a new job. He's a talented musician. He's got a lot of time to practice out in the fields. And so Saul, the current king, who is a bit of a madman, he kind of has some temper tantrums sometimes. He kind of loses his cool, and he realizes through someone else's advice, David will be a great help to you. So he brings in David, essentially like an old school version of music therapy. When he starts to lose his mind, David will come and play his harp, and Saul will be calm. So Saul loved him. He even made him his armor bearer, which means he would follow him to the front lines. Which leads David and us tonight to his most epic moment of his life. An epic moment of childlike faith because it's wartime. It's wartime and a villain arises. Right? You guys have heard of this dude, Goliath. He's huge, right? He is a big, bad dude. And this giant goes out and he looks at God's army, the people of Israel, and day after day after day, he taunts them. And he says, if you actually want to win this war, we will surrender just in one person to kill me, which you can't do. And he goes a step further. He starts taunting their God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, Israel's God. He taunts him. And surely somebody will step up, but nobody does. Because they know there's no way that any of them are going to beat this dude. He's huge. Now David's job as the youngest brother is not actually to be a warrior yet. His job is to be running snacks. If there's any food runners out there from the concession stands at Kinnick, this dude is a biblical food runner. And he takes his snacks to the front lines to his brothers to make sure they're doing okay. But one day he's doing this and he hears Goliath talking. He hears Goliath, the villain, taunting his God. And David says, who is this guy? Like, why is he running his mouth like this? And for a lack of better judgment, he stands up, long story short, and decides, I'm going to be the one to fight this guy. Terrible idea. Makes absolutely no sense. But there he is with his little sling and no armor and just a few stones in his pocket. And this is 1 Samuel 17, 42 through 47. This is what happens next. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He was jealous, I guess, of his good looks. Um, he said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. That is some good trash talk right there. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin. Pretty good arsenal for the record. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly, they'll know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. <sighs> nice. So what happens next is the two men take off towards each other. 
one in all of his armor, the other just with his little sling. And David looses the stone, sinks right into the forehead of the giant. You know what happens. He gets knocked out. He falls down. David does exactly what he says, takes the giant sword, cuts off his head, and Israel wins. What in the world? That is nuts. But I want to tell you, the point of this story, maybe unlike you've been told, is not about you defeating all of your giants in life. That's not really a healthy way to read David versus Goliath. The point of the story is that we would see the faith of a child who just wants to see his God glorified. Why does he want to kill Goliath? So that all the world will know the God of Israel. David's goal was not to be the hero. His goal was for his God to be worshipped. David didn't know he was supposed to lose, guys. (laughs) He hadn't really been to much battle before. He didn't know that he was outmatched. His eyes, though, they weren't fixed on fear. He only had eyes for his God, who, with that perspective, made this guy look pretty small. And he knew that God would come through. He always had for him. And that's childlike faith, isn't it? The army saw David, the shepherd boy, limited by this childlikeness, when in reality, this purity, this childlikeness was his greatest advantage as he leaned wholly on God. So the lesson from David number one tonight, guys, is that childlike innocence believes God can do all things. Childlike innocence believes God can do all things. Let me ask you this. What would you attempt? I'm going to ask you a few questions, okay? Just going to rattle them off. What would you do for God if you knew that you would never fail? What would you attempt for God if you knew you could not fail? Like when was the last time that you found yourself in a spot where if God didn't show up, automatic failure. What was different about your life that first season you became a Christian? What was different about it? Do you miss it? What were those things you did at first? Like, did you just love to share the gospel back then? Did you just love to tell people about God's glory so that more people would have what you had? Was your faith like contagious where people were just coming to know Jesus or at least hearing about Jesus left and right? Do you remember the joy that you experienced? Did your arms, like did they get sore during worship services because you didn't know any better? Guys, who can stand against a child whose eyes are fixed on God? But we know that time changes things, don't we? Maybe our life is a testament to that. David sure was. Because the story goes on, and we pick up with David maybe 30-some-odd years later, okay? Since his great victory, and here we go, it's wartime again. It's wartime again, and this time, David doesn't find himself going on the battlefield. He finds himself kicking back and relaxing at home. Okay. That's fair, right? I think that's totally fine. He deserves it. Even though God's name is being mocked and threatened out there on the battlefield, David just decides to sit this one out. I mean, I can't blame him. Who can blame him? He's been quite the conqueror since last time we picked up with him. Like, he has already outdone the military conquest of the king before him. He is doing great. Why not just stroll around, take a walk, and enjoy everything that he has earned, right? 
Well, it is this day that we find ourselves that David's life and his legacy would change forever. The eyes that he had for God, fixed on God, his eyes he had for God, have now been caught by something, something wonderful, something beautiful. Just one rooftop over. And so 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, I know I didn't give you much time to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5 says this. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. Verse 5 says, The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. The king is messed up, okay? And he responds, this king, by using his royalty to preserve his own glory, which is a fancy way of saying he did everything in his power to save his face. What he did next did not help the situation, only compounded the evil. David devises a plan to have his loyal, pure-hearted, noble friend and military officer Uriah killed. His wife just got pregnant, and it wasn't him. And so he tells his officers, send him into battle on the front line, and right when it's time to fight, you back up, and he'll get killed. And do you know what they did? They did it. Uriah was killed. He was murdered by David's plan. And David, the gentleman, the hero, takes Bathsheba to be his wife. He looks after the hurting and the widows. Guys, David's sin was so bad. It was so bad that he used Uriah's blood as a sacrifice to cover his own mistakes, to cover his own rebellion. And this is the second lesson we learned from David tonight, guys, that childlike innocence is ruined by the stain of sin. Childlike innocence is ruined by the stain of sin. And guys, I don't want you to be confused about this. David did not wake up one day and just accidentally lose his innocence, right? <laughs> That's not how we got here. It's been a long time since that faith-filled victory over Goliath, Right? He'd become king and everything that comes with being king. I mean, that would be hard, right? Being king, being queen, getting whatever you want or whoever you want. Like scrolling on a phone, David's lust for women slowly outweighed his love for his God. 
slowly walking away from that heart of love, right? Love, like marked by giving to others. Replaced with lust. What you can take for yourself. I'm telling you guys, David got exactly what his heart desired. The young man was gone and all the childlike innocence that once defined his story, right? I want you to notice that David's greatest failure, guys, this is important. This really speaks to me and this, I think this really speaks to us, that David's greatest failure came after he started following the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He let his guard down. And people would remember this failure forever. How might David feel? After being touted as this like religious leader and this man after God's own heart, this is what he does? How might he feel? Well, let me ask you, maybe do you know how he feels? Like what's that sin? What's that moment for you? Like, have you left that first love of following God, that joy of your salvation? Like, are you currently sleeping with your boyfriend? Are you currently sleeping with your girlfriend? Maybe even both of you are claiming to be in Christ. I don't know. Are you actually more addicted to porn now than even before you claim to start following Jesus? Like, are you actually like hiding something that you are so ashamed of. And it's something especially that you actually think it would ruin the good name that you have built in this place. What should you do with that? Or what would David do with this? Is childlike innocence ever going to be possible again? Well, what happens next is God sends another prophet, okay? A guy named Nathan. And Nathan, he calls David out, like really, really calls David out, right? God sees everything. He's seen it all, Dave. I mean, this guy, he really lays it on David. He says that what he did was evil. You don't hear that word thrown around at you very much, do you? That what you did was evil. But Nathan holds nothing back. He says that there is going to be severe consequences, like deadly, wicked consequences in your life because of the decisions that you have made. He makes David's guilt explicit. There's blood on your hands. Now what would David do? Well, we know exactly what he did. He wrote Psalm 51. I'm going to read the entire psalm for you guys, okay? And so it's going to be on the screen, or you can read it here. But David, after being confronted by the prophet, and his sin being laid bare for, yeah, this one prophet to see. And yeah, I forgot to see, but probably a lot of other people as well. This is how David responds in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop 
and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want to sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. No, the sacrifice pleasing to God, it's a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. And your good pleasure cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. After reading this, guys, do you know what I think? I think that the slaying of the giant Goliath, that was cool. That was a lot of faith. It took a lot of faith there. I don't think that was David's greatest act of faith. I think this true confession, what is a confession? It's like you agree with the Lord in your heart, and as you say with it, you agree with the Lord. I think this true confession is actually a greater miracle of faith. Like, it's one thing to believe that God can take care of the giant, or God can take care of the problems of the world out there, right? I know a lot of us have faith in that, right? Like, I want to be a missionary. Why? Because I believe God can take care of the sin out there. I want to plant churches. Why? Because God has something to say about the sin out there. But it's a whole other thing to look in the mirror and actually believe in faith that God can take care of the problem and the sins in there, in me. It's in Psalm 51 that the dirtiest and the farthest people from God find their greatest hope. I want to point out a few things that we absolutely cannot miss from David's confession here, okay? First is that true confession, it doesn't take the edge off of sin, right? <laughs> no kidding, Ryan. Yeah, no. You read what I read. True confession doesn't take the edge off of sin, one of our greatest temptations, I think, especially in the church, is to make sin no big deal, right? That's nah, no big deal. Let's not talk about it. Good vibes only, right? That sounds to me like a hospital making cancer no big deal. Nathan tells David his evil. And in turn, David tells God his evil. Why? Because he knows that with true diagnosis can come true healing. David goes... Even farther. You see in verse 5, he's even saying, I was, I was sinful at birth. What's he saying? He's saying that sin is not just a mistake that I made once. It's a lot deeper than that. It's who I am. It's what defines me. It's in my very blood. And true confession has to get to this because the goal of confession is not just for you and for me and for David to have behavioral modification, right? Like, if I unload my, my sin, the things that are holding me back, then I'll just run faster. If I unload these things, I will just be a better Christian. If I just unload these things, my behavior will be modified. No, the goal of true confession is life transformation, holiness, inside-out revival. 
True confession doesn't take the edge off sin, but secondly, true confession trades your guilt for the mercies of God. It trades the guilt that you have for the mercies of God. In verse 4, David says that his offense is against God, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. And if you know who this God is, you know that is a huge problem. Like, yeah, I know I killed a person, but at the core of it, I have defiled your world. I have sinned against you, God. And if you know that God, that is a huge problem. Why? Because God is holy. We just sang it like 300 times before I got up here. God is holy. He is a perfect judge. And if you have blood on your hands, there is no hiding. You are guilty. Guilty of rebellion against God, the perfect judge. But there's more to it, right? You know that God is not only just. He's not just out to punish sins. God is merciful. Verse 1, what is David appealing to? David is appealing to the judge for something. And he's appealing for mercy. David knows that he has oceans and oceans of sin that is very plain to him. But he knows that this God has something. He knows what this God is like. And he knows that he has even deeper oceans of mercy just waiting to be tapped into. And if you guys want to know what God is like, if you want to know how he will respond to your sin when you confess it before him, verse 1 will tell you this, that he is faithful in love to you. And that he is abundant in compassion to you. And he is willing to make a great exchange to trade your guilt for his righteousness. Finally, guys, true confession leads to a joyful repentance. True confession leads to a joyful repentance, guys. What's the promise that sin makes you? What's the promise of seeing that woman on the roof that you could have? And where did it leave you? Hmm? Never once has sin kept its promise. But here we are, and we have a God making a better promise. One that he will actually personally bank his own life on to keep. In his confession, David is turning away from sin, and he's doing something we call repenting. Literally means to change your mind or to walk one way and turn the other. Repenting. And what it, what it feels like to repent is it might feel hard. It might feel like digging your teeth and like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to let go of those things. I don't want to believe God that I should give these up. And it might feel hard, but I'm telling you, repentance leads to joy. When you turn towards God and turn away from your sin, what do you get? You get verse 12. When he says to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Man. Sorrows leave as joy overcomes you. So let me ask you, according to this, is childlike innocence actually possible for us? Absolutely. Because our last lesson of the night, guys, from David is that childlike innocence is possible with a God who washes sinners clean. Childlike innocence is possible with a God who washes sinners clean. The boy in striped pajamas, 
It was a great idea. It was a great sentiment. It makes you feel really, really good until it ends in tragedy, right? Until you realize that the evil in the camp wins. Until the purity and the innocence of the children is tainted as the son of the Nazi crawls under the fence and dresses up like his little Jewish friend because they want to go find his dad who has obviously been killed and they have no idea. And as they get stuck in a line and dragged into the gas chambers and killed as innocent children, the movie just leaves you hopeless. Proving a truth of this world that childlike innocence never even had a shot. Spoiler alert, sorry. But what I think is crazy is that God has a way better story to write than that. God hated sin so much that he wrote himself into the story to be the hero that we actually needed, far greater than David. And as Jesus walked this world, guys, totally pure and totally innocent, he approached sinners. He got close to people like you and me. But when he got near to evil, sin, and death, you know what actually happened? It's pretty cool. He approached lepers, right? He wasn't infected. They were healed. People brought him adulterers, and they walked away pure as snow. Thieves came to him in their guilt, and they left innocent. Prostitutes were falling at his feet, and they found forgiveness for a lifetime of sins. People brought him their dead, and the dead corpses woke up to find life. Guys, drawing near to God will not make him dirty. It will make you clean. And so I ask, what's stopping you tonight? What guilt and shame is stopping you, maybe for the first time, to come to Jesus and live? That simply. And for the Christian hero who thinks that they have too much at stake to be fully seen by somebody in this room or by God, confess your sin, be washed whiter than snow, and find that joy of your salvation, guys. Turn away from your sin and worship him again, innocent as a child. Guys, this psalm ends in worship. He makes his confession. He says, after that, I got plans, man. This has been the hardest moment of my life. And I am confessing and spilling my guts. And I am, man, I am pouring out a waterfall of tears. But I got plans, plans to worship. Plans to go back to church. Plans to raise my hand. Plans to tell other people about the glories of God. The only appropriate response to confession and repentance is thankfulness. Thankful that Jesus shed his blood on the cross to cover our guilt of bloodshed. Because what an amazing God we have who would go so far as to die for your joy. So how come would this be a place where sinners just love to come? They love to meet the living God confess their sins to him and to one another to turn away towards Jesus and find true joy. Let's pray. Jesus, your word says in 1 John 1 that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And Lord, I mean, it's been my prayer that 
not a single person would leave this place tonight not knowing you. That God, there would be no more hiding in our shame and in our guilt. But God, would we walk in the light? Would we be people who love to walk in the light as you were in the light? So we would have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another, Lord. And God, I also pray that if there's tears of sorrow in this place tonight, that you would not let a single child of yours leave without turning those tears of sorrow into tears of joy as we worship you. God, we love you. And we absolutely trust you. We believe God. Help our unbelief. It's in your name I pray. Guys, as we continue and close the night on worship, I just invite you to do the one application that this sermon asked for. To be known. To lay it all bare. To maybe go a place that you thought there's no way I'm ever telling anybody that. And so as we worship, you're going to have some space, you're going to have some time. Find your friends. Find somebody on staff here. Find anybody. And let Psalm 51 it up. Let's confess. Let's leave our sin and every weight which clings so closely behind. And let's run with endurance for the joy that is set before us. And let's do it together with our friends who love us. Reminding us that there's a God who loves us. And would tonight just end with the only, the only kind of joy and worship that comes from a forgiven mouth. Let's continue to give him glory.